Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Smart Karma Webinar. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the webinar analyst Heminder Hazari, who will outline his views on recent corporate governance developments in Indian financial institutions. Uh, Hemindra will be separating the narrative from the reality on the ground. A few words about Hemindra. He is a research analyst registered with the Securities and Exchange Board of India with over 25 years of experience in the Indian capital markets, specializing in banking and economic research. He has worked with prominent foreign and domestic capital market firms such as UBS, Societe Generale, and HSBC, and is a regular guest on business media channels, respected for his non-consensus view on stocks on the market. Hemindra, thank you very much for being back on the webinar with us today. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. So please feel free to start whenever you're ready. Thank you, Michael. And I welcome all the participants who have joined uh, from Singapore, Hong Kong, and India on this topic, which is of great importance, but is also branded down like a prominent brand for all the corporates uh, to get a better valuation and for a lot of corporate public relations. Now, if you look at what is really corporate governance, as Investopedia defines it, it's the system of rules, practices, and processes by which a firm is directed and controlled. And it involves all the stakeholders. Now, what is important to realize here is that it is much higher than the minimum legal requirements uh, that companies have to do as per the Companies uh, Act in India, as well as various uh, norms by the banking regulator. And therefore, it is these higher norms that all these companies, which we are going to discuss, they all profess to be maintaining extremely high standards of corporate governance, transparency, accountability. But actually, in reality, and what is actually happening on the ground is extremely important. Why is corporate governance in the financial sector so important as compared to the other sectors and the other companies in the industry? One is that they manage public funds. They are highly leveraged. They have, by their very definition and the kind of operations that they do, an asset liability mismatch. And banks in particular, they you know, have unsecured deposits which are liquid and loans which are illiquid. And most importantly, also that banks are critical to the entire economy. Because if a big bank gets into trouble, it can you know, set off a whole dominoes effect on the rest of the economy. Therefore, the standards of corporate governance conforming to the law in banks and financial institutions must be pristine. There can be no allowance for any shortfalls in corporate governance. Now, we go to our first example about RBL Bank. Now, RBL Bank is a relatively small bank, but it came into the limelight recently, and I'd like to highlight some of these aspects. Now, if you look at 
the RBL Bank's FY2020 annual report, the then CEO Vishwavir Ahuja, who was a very long uh, surviving CEO, he makes this very profound statement that RBL Bank is founded on strong governance standards and has robust controls. We have tightened our risk assessment criteria across the board and we continue to reduce exposures through timely intervention and proactive management. So as he puts it out in his annual report, you would expect that the risk management system, the governance systems are of very high quality. What was the timeline and why did it get you know, highlighted? Now, Vishwabir Ahuja, the long-standing CEO, he abruptly goes on leave on the 26th December 2021 taking the market and all its stakeholders by complete surprise. On the same date, the banking regulator, the RBI, appoints a serving RBI executive as a director. When the banking regulators, you know, deputes its own executive to serve as a director on any regulated entity, it sends shivers down everybody's spine. But that's a very serious decision and action that the regulator has taken. Rajiv Ahuja, who was his very able and again long-standing lieutenant, who was the executive director, is appointed as an interim CEO. Now, on the con call, I think on one day after this decision was taken, everyone was asking whether Mr. Rajiv Ahuja, who has the post of interim CEO, would continue and would it just be, you know, a formal, uh, normal process for him being appointed as the permanent CEO. A lot of analysts concluded, therefore, based on that call, that it just be a matter of formality that Rajiv Ahuja would be confirmed as the bank CEO. Now, the Mint newspaper on 15th February highlighted a high-risk $1.4 billion loan given to a company called Syntex BAPL in June 2019. Now, surprisingly, slightly over one and a half years later, Syntex BAPL was admitted to the insolvency tribunal in December 2020. Now, that's when I started doing my investigation based on the print article. Now, if you go to and you see that whether this loan actually existed, whether the bank had actually registered, if you go to the company, Department of Company Affairs, you will find that RBL Bank has registered a charge of around 1.4 billion on Syntex uh, BAPL. So we know for the fact that there is such a charge register. Now, if you analyze the immediate annual accounts, which should have been made available to the bank prior to them sanctioning this loan, you'll find a very interesting comment in the notes of that company, which says, that the bank is already, that, that this company has already delayed repaying the loan to Deutsche Bank. And it's in the zero to 60 days category, although it is technically not an NPA, because the NPA definition comes after 90 days. This should have immediately sent a warning signal to any new lender giving additional funds to the company. Now, more importantly, you will find that the financials of this company, which again should have been made available to the bank, it tells you that on the consolidated level, the debt equity was an astounding 10.5 is to one. Now, normally banks will not 
you know, take extra precaution when the debt equity is two to one and beyond three to one, you know, it is very difficult for any bank to justify why it is giving a fresh loan. Now, the problem you will find that the loan has to be approved by the credit committee of the bank as well as the bank's risk committee. Now, here you will notice at that time, there was Mr. Jairash Purandare, who's a chartered accountant, who was chairman of the credit committee. There was Mr. Ishan Raina, both of them are independent directors, who was, I think, into advertising. And you had both Mr. Vishwabhi Rahuja, and most importantly, from our context and point of view, Mr. Rajiv Ahuja was then the ED, was a part of the credit committee. He was also part of the risk committee, which was chaired also by the chairman of the board, uh, Mr. Prakash Chandra. Now, I find it astounding that any person with an idea of basic finance, and certainly even if you're not from the banking profession, if you're on the board of directors of a bank, you would understand the gravity lending to a company which has a debt equity ratio of 10 you know, is to one. It should have immediately sent out warning signals and the loan should have not even been given. Now the quality of this board, again, is of quite, they are not some insignificant players. You know, you have two chartered accountants. You had members who was a former member of the uh, insurance regulator. And you had plus the two executive directors. Yet, based on this, you would have noticed that all these qualifications cease to have any significance in giving such a loan. Like this is very basic finance that when you see a company which has a debt equity of 10.5 is to one, where already the company's own notes to account state that Deutsche Bank is, you know, the loan, the prepayment loan to Deutsche Bank has got delayed. It should never have cleared any of these processes, but surprisingly, it did. So therefore, when I did a note on 23rd February of this year, I made it very clear in my note that Mr. Rajiv Ahuja, who's the, their current interim CEO, he should not be appointed CEO in this bank, nor should he qualify for being a banker in any bank. Because if you are to clear such loans, you know, such poor quality. And ultimately, that company had to go uh, to the insolvency court, where the, this bank has now to see it to recover. Now, surprisingly, on 20th, 21st of April, there were two media reports which came out, which said that Mr. Rajiv Ahuja's name is not one of those three shortlisted. Now, although this is not official news as yet, I think it's, the signs are very clear that such a man has not been shortlisted by the bank's own board to get the banking regulator's approval. And this is where the whole point lies, that stakeholders, analysts, they have to look extremely closely at who are these individuals, who are they part of senior management, what kind of roles they have played, and therefore, do they deserve and are they competent to hold the posts that they hold? And you see, if you do your research properly, you could have come to this conclusion even before the media reports had come out. Because end of the day, our research analysts only deal with published information or information in the public domain. Now we come to another case of Yes Bank. 
everybody knows that Yes Bank, which finally had a run and the bank uh, was put under moratorium, the entire fiasco was put at the hands of its founder and CEO, Mr. Rana Kapoor. But what is you know, less known is that what were all the other senior officials at that time in the bank doing? And now the, all these officials are under investigation by the Enforcement Directorate and by the Central Bureau of Investigation. Now, the Enforcement Directorate had charge-seated six of these individuals. Now, all of them were senior executives at that point in time. They came from the most premier institutions that India has to offer. The then Chief Risk Officer of Yes Bank, Mr. Ashish Agarwa, was both IIM as well as IIT, which is a formidable combination. You had chartered accountants, which is an extremely difficult exam to clear. You had MBAs as well as you had CAs. Now, all these are not easy to enter these degrees and even to pass them. If you look at their employment prior to coming to Yes Bank, again, these are all blue chip names. Lehman Brothers, Rabobank, ICICI Bank, ANZ, ICICI, Crystal. Now, if you look at both these, you would, you know, just looking at them, it comes across as very top quality resumes. And they've also served a very long time in Yes Bank. Most importantly, look at their remuneration. For example, in FY 2018, Mr. Ashish Agarwal, his salary, including bonus, was an astonishing 71 nearly 72 million, that's 7.3 crores, which in FY 2018 and even today would be an obscene salary for any banker to get. And mind you, he was given even huge ESOPs on top of this. And if you see the salaries of all the others, you will see that they're extremely high. Now, if you compare their salaries to what the other companies were giving, other banks were giving, you will find that as compared to similar people in similar positions in Axis Bank and HDFC Bank, their salaries were significantly higher. Yes, banks, size in terms of risk-weighted assets, branches, is significantly smaller than Axis Bank, HDFC Bank, ICICI Bank. Yet, the remuneration packages they were being given was significantly higher. So if you just look at these packages, you would conclude that these individuals are super intelligent and extremely impressive bankers. Now, however, when these investigated agencies investigated some of these huge NPAs, which finally brought down the bank, if you see what did the enforcement directorate say when they interrogated these individuals, what was their answers that they gave on why they had agreed and approved these loans, which finally brought down the bank? What they said was, they put the entire responsibility on Rana Kapoor and stated 
that even though they had reservations about the loan, the pressure from the then CEO compelled them to approve it. Now, this is known as the classic Nuremberg defense, which is essentially we were just following orders. So what does one conclude from this? One concludes that the senior officials, they may be extremely well-educated. They may come out from some of the finest educational institutions that the country has to offer. They must have phenomenal prior work experience with very well-known names. But end of the day, when it comes to evaluating credit, which is so critical in a bank, they are just rubber stamps. What they're essentially saying is that we just sign on the dotted line because our boss tells us to do it. So the point being here is that sometimes we see and sometimes these officials, they broadcast how impressive their pedigree is which earlier banks they worked with, what kind of educational degrees they have. But end of the day, as we have seen in this case, and we'll again see some of the other cases as well, all that education, all that work experience, it just does not matter. Because finally, they are just yes men. And they will just do what the top tells them to do. Now, in another case, we come across Kotak Mahindra, the asset management company. Now, Kotak, as anyone who knows the Indian financial market, the AMC is a subsidiary of Kotak Mahindra Bank, uh, which is known to have very robust credit systems, the bank. That's why you see that the NPAs there are much lower than the peers in the industry. And therefore, one expected that uh, you have similar systems in Kotak Mahindra AMC where even the AMC has the chairman of Mr. Uday Kotak. Now, what does Kotak Mahindra AMC's FY 2019, FY 2017 annual report say? The risks in fund management are managed by investment committee, which is appointed by the board and is responsible for monitoring the credit and interest rate risks. Your company has robust risk management policy and practices in all the above related areas of functioning to check the adequacy of risk management systems. You will notice that Kotak Mutual Fund had about six schemes of their fixed uh, maturity plans where they had in invested heavily in some of the Z companies. Now, what is interesting to note is the rightmost column, where you'll see that each of these funds, the weightage of these companies was extremely high. It was in all cases, except one, more than 5%. And in many cases, it was near 10%. Now, when you have such a high holding in a particular group of one you know, industrial house company, you would expect, since this is a debt fund, that the quality of these companies, again, would be top-notch. Now, when the SEBI investigated this whole Z fiasco, what did they conclude in their SEBI order, which is available to the public? They said that when the investment committee of quota invested, it was not aware of the issuer entity 
on the date of approving the proposal to invest in the Z convertible, uh, zero convertible, non-convertible debentures. Now, again, here it is surprising that when an investment committee meets to approve of an investment in a company where they're going to be taking, uh, you know, subscribing to its debt, I mean, it is very basic that you will know the identity of the company. Because once you know the identity of the company, you will know its financials and therefore you'll analyze it. But here, surprisingly, the entire investment policy of Kotak Mahindra, AMC, it seems permits that the investment committee approves of an investment even without knowing which company they are investing into. And just broadly, they give a direction that, okay, it is some group and therefore we are comfortable with that group. Now, actually, if you look at the financials of these companies, you will observe that both these companies were loss-making at the time this investment in their zero convertible bonds was done. They had huge leverage and they were, the fi financials were unable to refinance or even pay back the debt, which was even acknowledged uh, by the investment committee. And therefore it had to resort to refinance uh, to pay back the Kotak AMC's debt. Now, again, these are all extremely poor ways to appraise credit. And it is no wonder then that all these companies went into trouble with these kind of finances. Now, it was extremely fortunate for the unit holders of Kotak AMC as well as the others that they were able to get back most of the investment. But for a time, the investments were frozen as a uh, you know, the AMC did not allow the redemptions to happen. And therefore, it speaks extremely poorly on the quality of the senior executives and the oversight exercise by not only the board of the AMC, but also the trustees of this, who should have actually reprimanded the executives. Who were these executives on the Debt Investment Committee in 2017? These are all very well-known names. They are regularly in the media. They're all regarded as great experts in their field. But when you see that they were on this committee, which approved these poor quality investments, you really wonder what exactly is going on and why is it that they invest in such paper? And if we know one such example, how many more of such examples there must be where nobody knows anything about? And it is extremely one thing you will realize that a lot of these individuals, especially like Nilesh Shah or even Lakshmi Ayer, are regularly interviewed in the media. But in all those interviews, nobody in the media really asks them what exactly happened and how could they have approved such investments. Now we come to our next example is the National Stock Exchange, which attained great notoriety in the way things were going on on the board. Now, if you see what its FY 2017 annual report states, the company is committed to maintain the highest standards of corporate governance 
and adhere to the corporate governance requirements consistent with such standards. Now, because of all the publicity, we actually know the abysmal standards that the board of the NSC, which is such a prestigious organization, uh, was doing. But I would just like to highlight how abysmal it really was that normally, I mean, it is mandatory that when you attend a board meeting, you can only attend when a notice and an agenda is circulated to the directors. But lo and behold, in the company's FY 2017 annual report, the secretarial auditors state at the board meeting held on 16th September 2016, at which neither notice nor agenda was circulated. Seven out of eight directors, including four of the five public interest, interest directors, were present. Now, this is such a highly irregular practice, which some corporate lawyers say is even illegal, that you cannot have a board meeting without a notice being given. And it's therefore even more surprising that even without a notice being circulated, how did these eight directors come from such a board meeting? So obviously there is some other parallel level of communication by which this company seems to be running and being managed by, because nothing seems to be there part of any formal process. And even for an emergency board meeting, a shorter notice must be given. So you'll find that this is India's premier stock exchange that it was holding a board meeting without a notice. That means any decisions also taken at such a board meeting may not be legally valid at all. Now, if this was not bad enough, when an important discussion was happening pertaining to the removal of Mr. Anand Subramaniam, who was the consultant and group operating officer of the NSC on 21st October, 2016, the board meeting, the minutes was not included in that board meeting. That means all the board members deliberately suppressed the entire discussion on such an important issue of removing a senior executive of the company. Now, it is extremely important when the board takes any decision that it is minuted and documented. Because if there is any debate on it subsequently, or supposing in this case that Mr. Anand Subramaniam had sued the board for removing him, the board can present its minutes to say how and under what basis and what rationale they took that decision. But when you suppress the board minutes totally, you are suppressing its entire you know, information to any scrutiny. And that is the exact point of suppressing it, that you don't want anything to be there on the record. Now, again, if you look at who are these board members who attended this October 21st, 2016 meeting, again, these are all very well-known names. When Mr. Ashok Chawla, the chairman of the board and a former IS officer, we had Mr. TVS Mohandas Pai, you had Mr. Havaldar, and you had Mr. Parthasarthi. You also had Anshula Kant, who was the deputy managing director then of State Bank of India. 
Now, these individuals, some of them were representing their, you know, the companies which had invested in NSC, and others were representing the public interest. But look at this, they were willing to suppress board minutes, which they should have been in the public domain, or not even in the public domain, because board minutes are confidential. <clears throat> but they're supposed to protect the public interest. They were just willing to align themselves with the executives, forsake their responsibility to their own shareholders who had investments in NSC, forsake their responsibilities to the public, and they were public interest directors. And again, in the case of Anshula Khan, she later was elevated to the managing director of State Bank of India. Thereafter, now she has joined, uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the global financial development institutions as the chief financial officer. So the point is, again, all these prominent names that you have, actually, when you see them working, because all this would normally have not come into the public eye had not been for these investigative, the regulatory investigations, which then thereafter became public, that you get to see actually how things work in some of these supposedly well-run uh, institutions. Now, I will deal with the role of auditors. Now, these are the about six banks which I've been closely tracking. And if you know, these were the auditors over the span of about 10 years. Now, the, the items which have been enclosed in a red box are when the RBI had detected that their accounts were misleading and therefore were unreliable. Now, when I did this study in FY16 and FY17, I noticed that the same directors, the same set of audit firms were just being shuffled around in the same bank after a period of time, or they were shuffled around uh, with other banks as well. You will find in particular that SR Bartley Boy is there over the years in Axis, in HDFC, in Indusind, ICICI. You know, it's there at some point in time in all these six banks. Now, I noticed in FY 2016 that Mr. Viren Mehta, the partner who signed off the accounts, the RBI subsequently found it to be misleading. I also found in the same year, he was the auditor who had signed off on Yes Bank's account, which was misleading. And I said, and I wrote a note on that for the public, that when a firm and a particular audit partner in two separate banks, the accounts that he has signed and approved have been found to be misleading by the banking regulator and which is in the public domain. How can anyone rely on that firm's account or that partner's approval of the accounts? But mind you, this common sense view the shareholders of the bank were quite comfortable of continuing with the auditors. The board of directors were comfortable because you can see, I think Viren Mehta's term ended in uh, FY16, so therefore he was changed. And in, in Axis Bank, he continued to FY17, where again, that, that year's accounts was put forth as misleading. And he, say, he served about a four-year term in Axis Bank. Now, it was no surprise to me 
because I had published a note on May 23rd, 2017, where I had highlighted how this particular audit firm, accounts which it had approved are unreliable. On June 3rd, 2019, RBI banned SR Bartley Boy from auditing banks from April 1st, 2019 for one whole year. Now, it is surprising that despite all this being in the public domain, earlier to this circuit of this ban by RBI, HDFC Bank, Indusin had already approved SR Bartley Boy as their auditor. And following this move, they had to again remove them abruptly and appoint another firm. So the point here being is that despite all this information being in the public domain, there is absolutely no pressure on the executive, on the board of directors, even by the shareholders. They can continue to do exactly what they want. And it's only when the regulator cracks down do they all you know, wake up from this selective kind of amnesia and then they react to the news. So what is one to conclude from all this? You see, these examples are not some obscure companies. They're all very prominent companies. Most importantly, in one case, it is India's premier stock exchange. It is a public institution. In other cases, they are all banks which manage public unsecured funds. One, you will notice that there is no lack of corporate governance structures or systems. The regulator and the company law, there are a lot of laws which they have to follow. There are a lot of structures which they all supposedly comply with. Then why is all this happening? Essentially, it is happening because the corporate and especially the financial sector is highly incestuous. There are many interrelated business links amongst the parties. You will typically find that the independent directors are normally of you know, particular categories. One, they will be lawyers, they will be chartered accountants, which obviously their business uh, comes from the corporate world. Two, they will be former Indian administrative officers who have been in the IAS or government. They have retired and they want to have a very comfortable social uh, standing. So they get these boards, so they get to be appointed on boards. And then you have all these retired bankers and other people who have retired who wish to be on boards to maintain a certain standard of life. So you will find that dissent within companies and the board of directors is rare. Just like we had the yes men at Yes Bank who were willing to sign on the dotted line, even though they had contrarian views, but refused to publicly note their dissent. Similarly, the board of directors of even independent directors, they refused to put anything recorded on dissent. As we have seen, any controversial discussion is also very conveniently removed from the minutes. Essentially, in the corporate world that we live in, there is no future for dissenters. Whistleblowers who blow the whistle and who identify themselves, no corporate will ever employ them. This is recognized globally as well as in India. 
And dissident directors, if ever they record their dissent or they keep asking uncomfortable questions to the executive or to the founders of that company, you will find that they will not be given another term. And most importantly, they will be blacklisted as independent directors in the entire corporate world. So whatever revenue they thought they could get as being independent directors will be lost. The business media in India is even more compromised than the mainstream media because their idea, especially of business TV, their idea of exclusive is to get an exclusive supposed interview with the CEO or the founder for some inane sound bites. So therefore, what is the solution? In my view, the solution for this is because it is unlikely that independent directors whom the regulator has put tremendous faith in are unlikely to change their views and how they behave overnight. So it only requires, unfortunately, more intrusive regulation by the regulators and severe punishment for misgovernance and punishment not only for executive directors and senior executives, but also for independent directors. When anything goes wrong, they always say, in their defense is that we did not know. They did not know because they were not willing to ask any questions. So therefore, I now conclude my talk. I leave it to my viewers to judge whether these examples are exceptions to the rule or are we all living in the matrix? Thank you. We can have question and answers now. Well said, Himindra. Thank you very much for your presentation and for your insights. As we wait uh, to see if there are any questions from the audience, um, Himindra, one thing that really uh, pops up in such discussions about governance issues in uh, listed companies like this is, do these issues seem to affect their share price at all? Or do the markets kind of treated as just another day at the office. Uh, and, and I wonder if that is also part of the problem. See, that's an interesting issue which has been debated in the academic literature, whether having superior corporate governance leads to better performance. Now the literature cannot really conclude either way. But what we have noticed is that typically investors, they really want to see performance and a consistency in performance. And sadly, from my interaction with many institutional investors, I have come to the conclusion that sophisticated investors really do not care how the company delivers the results. They can be doing money laundering. They can be exploiting their staff. They can be exploiting their customers, the most famous case being Wells Fargo. But as long as the company is delivering on its profits, on its you know, ROV, that's all they seem to be concerned with. Even when they know there's a lot of things going wrong, they will really not sell their investments until some major event comes out, well, either the regulator steps in and says something, 
or the company on its own realizes that they can't you know, keep fudging the accounts and they put out a statement, then everybody says, oh, yes, there's this problem. We should not hold the stock. So until everything, as long as you can <clears throat> keep reporting you know, good numbers, uh, the market will accept that, even if it knows that there are some issues inside. So everyone likes to talk about corporate governance, but actually everybody just wants to see financial performance. That is perhaps the, the most concerning thing of all, uh, I suppose. Uh, we have a question from an attendee uh, asking, regarding your comments on RBI's role in oversight of the banks, does the inspection not cover those governance points? You see, the inspection, we first don't know what the inspection actually contains because it's a confidential document. However, some of these, because of the transparency law in India, a couple of these inspection reports came to the public domain. And of course, these were from earlier years. And in many cases, I think in the case of Yes Bank, they just missed out on what was going on, although the entire market at that time knew there's something seriously wrong with Yes Bank. But somehow the RBI inspectors uh, could not detect it, which I think speaks poorly for the RBI inspection during those years. I think since then, I understand that RBI inspection has greatly improved. Uh, because of this huge NPA problem that uh, India has had. So I think now the inspections are tighter. Uh, but I think even despite the RBI, I think if you're an average analyst like myself, uh, you can detect a lot of these things and prove it. Uh, if you just do some very basic kind of digging around and you know asking questions. And that sadly, is the problem today that we depend supposedly always on the regulator when people with average intelligence, average analytical skills can actually detect all this from information in the public domain uh, prior to it actually happening. Understood. Thank you very much for that. I suppose that partly answers an attendee's next question, which is given potentially illegal acts, um, like, for example, the NSE board and quite a large civil regulatory service in India. Uh, how come prosecutions have not taken place, uh, asks the attendee. Unfortunately, the criminal prosecution of both track records of both the Enforcement Directorate and the Central Bureau of Investigation is extremely poor. A lot of times they just leak out some of their prosecution investigation details to the press, which mind you should be confidential even when it goes to the court, just to tell, to sensationalize how great uh, their investigation really is. But the actual proof of the pudding is if you actually criminally prosecute them and sentence them. And that, again, unfortunately, the track record is extremely poor. So at best, they will be jailed for some time like Rana Kapoor is, and very few will actually face severe punishment uh, by the regulators, because that's just the way, because most of the time these people are extremely wealthy, they're extremely well connected. And in India, you can get away with murder if you, you know, manage the environment. Uh, we have seen that. So you don't get that punishment, but most, what is, annoying and extremely disturbing to me is that even when it has been proven that these individuals have been doing 
a lot of acts which are extremely imprudent, which may be illegal. So just because they have not been prosecuted by any agency, other companies will still hire these individuals in very senior posts. This is what I find extremely disturbing, that there is no social stigma attached to any of their wrongdoings. That means the corporate world, and when I say the corporate world, I'm talking of prominent companies. I'm not talking of small companies. These are the proper companies where this considerable investment of FIs goes into. Is that they are willing to employ these people, which tells you exactly what type of individuals they want to do what kinds of activity. That is, I find, extremely disturbing. Understood. And Atendi uh, has a comment on this. He suggests reducing rewards and remunerations of top executives and even directors would be essential in order to bring better uh, conscience, I guess, among the top echelons. See, how does this work? You will typically find that in a lot of these banks, at the lower levels, you completely exploit the labor. At the branch level for the staff, they will have very long working hours. Their salaries will be just be, you know, even be lower than probably government banks at certain levels. But at the top, they will be paid obscene salaries, as I have shown in my presentation. And this all really comes from the CEO. Because the CEO, he wants his salary to be extremely high. And what they do, and this is all done with the connivance of the board and all the independent directors, they will do a survey of all the other, their peers. And each of their peers will inflate their own salary. So it's like a big circular uh, system. And they say, oh, you see, the common salary is only this much. The other peer is doing it at much higher level. So therefore, our salary must be that high. So there is this game played by which all the seniors in that industry, their salaries keep increasing, while at the junior level who put in a lot of the hard work, their salaries you know, remain stagnant, or they have to do 125% of their target to get any kind of rewards or bonuses or increments. And what this leads to at the top is because of ESOPs, you get this practice of inflating your profit numbers because these individuals because of their shares that they own, they, and the share price is not doing well, they want to show higher profit, which their performance has not been there, so their own wealth increases. Now, thankfully, the Reserve Bank of India now is putting caps on the kind of ESOPs the executive directors can get. But I think a lot of this has come because of this. So should they be penalized? Most definitely. But I say that they should have been sacked and should not have been made hireable in any part of the industry. Unfortunately, even in Yes Bank, you know, Mr. Ashish Agarwal, even by the whole entire board was changed, they still retained him. And I had to write about two notes that how can he still be retained when he's being investigated by the uh, criminal federal agencies. And finally, he took leave. The, the company didn't really remove him. And this is the case even with Chitra Ramakrishna at NSC. She was allowed to resign. She was not sacked by the board, which tells you what a cozy relationship the board has with the CEO. Understood. Thank you very much. 
And thank you very much, everyone, for attending and for sharing your questions. Hemindra is available for uh, bespoke research requests. Uh, so if you wish to engage him directly, please contact your Smart Karma account manager and they will uh, help you out in this regard. Uh, I also encourage you to seek out uh, Hemindra's insights on the Smart Karma platform and follow his profile as he writes extensively about uh, these issues that we talked here uh, talked about here today. And for any other questions or comments that you might have, you can reach us at research at smartkarma.com. Hemindra, thank you very much once again for being with us today and being so generous with your time. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.